Now, we've covered, first, the first missionary journey. We covered, secondly, the Jerusalem Council. We covered, third, the second missionary journey, chapters 15, 36, to chapters 18, chapter 18 to 22. We finished that last Friday morning. Now, what I want to do today is cover the third missionary journey and the three imprisonments of Paul, and when we end, end with Acts 28, 31. Now, that's a big order, but uh, that's what we're going to do. It took Paul about one year to get from uh, Jerusalem to Rome. It's going to take us about 10 minutes and uh, when we get near the end of it. All right, now we come to the third missionary journey. The third missionary journey is found in Acts 18.23 to 21.16. Let's take our Bibles and turn there. You'll have to have your Bible open because uh, I'm going to primarily refer to the Bible and not give much content to each one of these. Acts 18, verse 23. Now let's go to Acts 13, verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, and so on, and Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Send me apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyrus. There begins the first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. Now let's turn to Acts 15, verse 36. Maybe you've got that marked in the march in your Bible. Perhaps it would be well. First missionary journey, I, I abbreviate it by putting one, just the numeral, one MJ, one MJ, Acts 13 and 14. Now we come to chapter 15, verse 36. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, that's the second missionary journey. That begins the second missionary journey. The second missionary journey runs from Acts 15, verse 36, all the way over to Acts 18, 22. Will you turn with me to Acts chapter 18? Acts 18, verse 22. Here ends the second missionary journey. In when Paul, Acts 18, 22, when Paul landed at Caesarea, he went up. Now he went up where? Yeah, it doesn't tell us. But the inference is clear. It means he went up to Jerusalem. He landed in Caesarea. He went up to Jerusalem, verse 22. And then after going to Jerusalem, he went down to what city? All right, that completes the second missionary journey. Now, perhaps after only a couple of months, he begins the third missionary journey. That begins verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from Antioch and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, that begins the third missionary journey. Look with me at Acts 21, verse 16. Acts 21, verse 16. Here ends the third missionary journey. Verse 15, after this we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And that ends the third missionary journey. Some of the disciples of Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were saved. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. That ends the third missionary journey. 
Now, at the end of the first missionary journey, Paul went back to Antioch. At the end of the second missionary journey, Paul went back to Antioch. At the end of the third missionary journey, he didn't go back to Antioch. Why? He is put in prison, right. Put in prison in Jerusalem, and then whisked out of Jerusalem at late at night, and taken up to Caesarea, and there stayed in Caesarea for two years. So he didn't get back to Antioch, the end of his third missionary journey. Now, what we want to do uh, this morning is cover this third missionary journey and then look at the imprisonments of Paul. First missionary journey, Paul has evangelized this southern central part of Asia Minor. Paul had a definite missionary strategy in mind. It was adjusted somewhat by the Lord, but he had a definite strategy in mind. First of all, Paul evangelized this southern central part of Asia Minor. That was critical. In the second missionary journey, he was forbidden to spend much time in western Asia Minor. And rather, he was called over to Greece, and Paul evangelized on the second missionary journey the strategic cities of uh, Macedonia and Achaia. That constitutes primarily ancient Greece. Macedonia, Achaia, Illyricum, Paul evangelized that but he only has one little reference to it in Romans chapter 15. So he evangelizes the strategic cities in what we call Greece. Then Paul came back at the end of the second missionary journey. On the third missionary journey, Paul then stopped at Ephesus for at least three years and evangelized Ephesus and also all of these strategic cities in western Asia Minor. Colossae, uh, Laodicea, Philadelphia, all those churches to whom John writes the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 were evangelized at this time by Paul during the three years at Ephesus. And, uh, and when Paul had finished, he had, he had evangelized the uh, cradle of uh, European civilization, what is called the Aegean um, seaports, the Aegean land, all of Greece and all of Western Asia Minor. And as you probably know, this is the great center of Christianity, the first 300, 400 years of the church's history. What did the church councils meet? The church, the council of Nicaea, the council of Constantinople, well, obviously where that meant, and the council of Chalcedon, where did they meet? All up here in this area. And this is the great thriving center of Christianity the first 300, 400 years of the church's history. Then it moved west to Rome. Then the Protestant Reformation moved west to Western Europe and England. Then it moved west to New England, and then down south and out west. And probably the great thrust is moving now today in our century to the uh, eastern part, to Southeast Asia, perhaps over to Japan and Korea seems to be that the movement of the gospel is always westward, westward, westward. And it may be that America's in the eclipse of this. Uh, Dr. Graham, I remember, said on one occasion, and I think uh, that there's a lot of truth to it, that the reason God has preserved America so long, two reasons. Number one, because America is the, <clears throat> is the, uh, America supports and send out, sends out missionaries more than any other nation. It's the great fountainhead of missions. And secondly, in accordance with Genesis 12, 
America has always been a friend of Israel, of the Jews. Because of those two things, God probably has preserved America. Now, here's the third missionary journey. It starts at Antioch, and uh, uh, Paul uh, revisits these churches and disciples them once again, comes to Ephesus, spends three years out of the four or five years, spends three years at Ephesus, then after the three years goes up here in this area, spends perhaps six, seven, eight months, then down to Corinth where he spends three months and writes the book of Romans and then quickly back over this area. Meant to sail directly, but a plot was raised against him. So uh, they probably sent the ship and whisked Paul out by night and he moved up this way and back to the little island of Melita and then on down to Jerusalem and there he was taken prisoner. Now let's cover that third missionary journey. And there are probably about um, four or five things that take place. First of all, Paul revisited the churches of Galatia and Phrygia. Look at verse 23, Acts 18, verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, the local churches there. Now, when were those churches founded? When were those churches founded? First missionary journey. And on a second missionary journey, Paul went back and visited them and discipled them. On the third missionary journey, Paul went back and visited those churches once again, and here it is. Now beginning with Acts verse 18, Acts chapter 18, verse 24, all the way through the end of Acts chapter 19, we have Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Now we have in Acts 18, 24 to 28, the story of Apollos. Paulus got to Ephesus first. He only knew the preaching of John the Baptist and Ananias uh, and um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila set him straight. That's given to us in the last part of chapter 18. Now let's go to chapter 19, Paul's ministry in Ephesus. This is one of the great missionary endeavors of Paul. Three years in Ephesus. How do we know? Well, turn over to Acts 20, verse 31. Paul gets these elders of Ephesus a year or so later down to little, of my, little Isle of Milet and talks to them. So he says in verse 31, So be on your guard. Remember that for how long? Three years. I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. How long then did Paul spend in the city of Ephesus? Give us this. Three years. Three-year ministry, city of Ephesus. That's longer than he spent in any other place. Why did he spend three years at Ephesus? Because it was such a strategic city. It was a great city in itself. Uh, it skips me right now what the population was. I think about 600,000 people. It's a great city. It was a great city not only itself uh, and uh, had some magnificent temples, but more than that, it was the key city to the interior, to all these cities that lay in the interior, and then the major route that went to that went through Asia Minor, went through Ephesus, all the way down to the Indus Valley. So when Paul evangelized Ephesus, in a sense he was also evangelizing eastward all the way down to the, all the, way down to the Indus Valley. And some of those churches that John writes through Revelation 20, 20, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, we have no idea how those churches started. They probably started by Paul evangelizing some traveling salesmen from Colossae or Sardis 
or Philadelphia. You notice how all these little cities down in Mississippi are named after those seven churches. Although I don't think we got a Laodicea in Mississippi, have we? Because that was the church God said, I want to spew you out of my mouth. So they don't have any Laodiceas. But Sardis, Philadelphia, so on, yes. All right, Paul's here at Ephesus. Now he does five or six things. First of all, he straightens out uh, some disciples of John the Baptist, chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. That's very interesting. Very interesting. We don't have time to look at it. But may I recommend it to your study? Paul came, and here were these disciples of John the Baptist. All that they heard was the ministry of John the Baptist. And they had been baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist. So Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard about the coming of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about the death of Christ. They didn't know about Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. All they had was the ministry of John the Baptist. Apparently, they heard John down there at one of the feasts, and then they had left and come back here, and they didn't know the rest of the gospel. So Paul preached the gospel to them. They were saved. <clears throat> he laid their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit, and uh, they were converted to Christ. And after they were saved, they were uh, baptized once again. And that has some important ramifications, which I don't need to spell out. First, that the baptism of John is not the same as Christian baptism. These men were baptized in the baptism of John. Jesus was baptized in the baptism of John. But they were baptized again in Christian baptism. It teaches, secondly, I think, that as they were baptized the second time, once before they were converted, and secondly, after they were converted, that they were baptized as believers. The normal order in the book of Acts is they heard the word of God, they believed the word of God, they received the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized in water. And I'd suggest that section to your study. Now we come third to Paul's ministry in Ephesus in the school of Tyrannus. Let's begin at verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue, spoke there for three months in the synagogue arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, maligned the way, so Paul left the synagogue and took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, this is a common thing in Greek culture. They would have lecture halls in the various schools of philosophy and meet the lecture halls. The Greeks worked up to about noontime, and then from noon to about 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, they would often go to the marketplace or to the lecture hall and hear some noted speaker. So Paul went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was probably not a believer, but he allowed Paul to use his lecture hall. And there Paul spoke to both Jews and Gentiles. Now notice what it says by the time he's through. Verse 10, how long did Paul minister in the lecture hall of Tyrannus? Two years, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in, you've gone in Asia. I'm reading from a different translation. All the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You know, when we come to the New Testament, the word Asia is used in three different senses, or in our term. Well, we, when we use the word Asia, we usually think of Russia and China and so on down the line. That's Asia, continental Asia. Secondly, we use the word Asia of what is called today Turkey, Asia Minor. But those two uses are not found in the New Testament. 
when the New Testament speaks of Asia, it refers to the province of Asia, this section right in here. And so when Paul taught in the school of Tyrannus, he had a lot of people passing through Ephesus. And they migrated. They had a few days to spend in the city of Ephesus. So they migrated to one of the popular philosophical halls, the school of Tyrannus. And the school of Tyrannus, there happened to be a man there by the name of Paul, Paul of Tarsus, who was speaking, speaking about a Jesus, a Messiah, who died on the cross and was raised again from the dead and fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. And these traveling salesmen passing through, many of them were converted to Christ in the school and the house, the hall of Tyrannus, and then they went on home. Sardis, Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Pergamos, and went home and won others to faith in Christ and started a church. And 30 years later, 35 years later, Paul wrote the book of Revelation and addressed those seven churches that were started in this time. Paul was a master strategist. Paul was a master strategist in his missionary strategy. He didn't go everywhere. He couldn't go everywhere. He didn't go out to all the small country towns. He went to the great urban centers, located the nerve center in those urban centers where people were passing through. Then he evangelized those strategic places in those urban centers. One man who was traveling all over the surrounding area won them to faith in Christ and then laid upon them the responsibility of going back to Cogerville or Sardis or Forest City and winning their fans to Christ and starting a local church. That was Paul's strategy. And I'm going to talk about that somewhat next week. It's an interesting thing. The last 35, 40 years, the church has been rediscovering the principles of Paul's missionary strategy, and especially the indigenous principles. One of the men who was here in Memphis, who's now dead, Dr. Salto, was one of the strong men that that revitalized the principle of indigenous mission. That principle goes back almost 2,000 years. It was used by Paul. And uh, that's the strategy that Paul adopted, and we'll look at that somewhat next week. Well, Paul preached there. Then in verses uh, 13 to 20, we have uh, the defeat of the Jewish exorcists. They attacked Paul, and Paul responded to them and cast out that evil spirit. On the seven sons of Sceva. I like that. The seven sons of Sceva. That has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> the seven sons of Sceva. And they were exorcists. Uh, and uh, Paul commanded the evil spirit that came out. And that evil spirit came out uh, of the man. And as he did it, it attacked those seven sons. And you say, is that true? Absolutely. What is an evil spirit? That's a demon. And demon possession is real. The Bible is careful to distinguish between diseases and demon possession. Often in the Gospels and the book of Acts, the Bible says that so-and-so healed all diseases and cast out demons. So demon possession and demon influence is not a matter of uh, the mind. It's not a mental infirmity. Demons are real. They're simply the angels that fell in the revolt of Satan. And demon possession was real. 
Paul was often confronted by demon possessing. He cast out those demons. And notice what happened as a result. I like this in verses 13, uh, 17 to 20. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came openly and confessed their evil deeds. Then something happened. Something happened that the, um, would have raised the ire of the ACLU. Something happened here. Verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their souls together and burned them publicly. <laughs> to think of the audacity of that, that they burned their books. Here are book burners, see, in the early days. Book burners. They brought their skulls together and burned them publicly. One, they calculated the value of the skulls. The total came to 50,000 drachma. About a drachma was one drachma was about a day's wages. So you can compute that. 50,000 days' wages was about the worth of those books. They had an open, public book burning. Now, you can, you can well know what the editors would have done to that scene had that taken place today. When anybody attempts to get one book taken care of, here were 50,000 books that worth about this price. So, verse 21, after all this happened, Paul decided to go back to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia, and now after I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers. Now, we don't have it. We don't hear it. We don't have the time to look at it. But several things happen here. wonder if you look up here. Right at verse 21 and 22, there's several things happen. We don't have it recorded here. We, we have to go over to Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, pick this up. One thing that happened here is that Paul, right at this point, made a quick visit from Ephesus over to Corinth and back again. Corinth gave Paul more headaches than any other church. You might well say that the church at Corinth gave Paul more headaches than all the other churches put together. It was plagued by trouble. And it was plagued by trouble because these people who were saved and members of the church still carried with them the marks of the old life. They still had, they were still deposed toward uh, um, loose morals and going to law with one another. The people that were in the church at Corinth were converted uh, adulterers and converted homosexuals and converted thieves. You say, how do you know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9, 10, 11 tells us that. And Paul had constant trouble with the church at Corinth. And then another thing that troubled was the matter of division. They were all party-oriented. I'm a Paul, I'm apostle, and then that super-spiritual party said, oh, we're of the party of Jesus. See, <laughs> That left everyone else behind. And all these problems racked uh, and troubled Paul. And Paul, when Paul left the city, he didn't leave those troubles. He carried them with him. Paul had a pastor's heart, and he prayed for these churches, and it wore heavily upon his soul. So, to solve them, Paul, number one, made a quick trip to Corinth and back. That didn't solve it. So he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. We don't have that letter. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. It's a lost letter. Lost letter. How do we account for it being lost? It was not inspired. Therefore, it was lost. Then, third, Paul then wrote 1 
Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, from Ephesus to Corinth to deal with the problem. And then Paul sent a couple of his, of his um, friends over to the, to the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth to deal with the problem. Didn't do it. Didn't solve it. Then the final thing we have in chapter 19 is the riot that took place. Look at verse 23. About that time there rose a great disturbance about the way. <clears throat> there followed a riot. Paul had, um, Paul had preached against idolatry. And there was in the city, uh, uh, the city of Ephesus was uh, strongly inclined toward the worship of, uh, of Diana. And uh, they had a great temple to her in that city. And there was a business in that city. Some would like the business down at Walls in the city. There was a business in that city that made these little idols of Diana. And uh, people would buy these idols. And that was, of course, a great source of income and business to the company that was making them. When Paul preached the gospel and these people were converted, you know exactly what happened to the sales of that company. It zoomed way down. So one of them, one of them, a silversmith, was involved in this business, got all of his friends together involved in the same business, and said two things. First, this man Paul is ruining our business. And second, he's challenging the majesty of the goddess Diana. And of course, he used the second one, religion, as a cloak for the first one. And so he stirred up a riot, and they got hold of Paul, and they attempted to kill Paul. And while they're in the process of about killing him, the town clerk, the most powerful person in the city, came into the, into, the, uh, into the temple where they were meeting, into the public hall where they were meeting. Uh, for two hours, you recall, they shouted, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The town clerk, the man who stood between the city and the provincial government of Rome. The town clerk came in and quieted them down, and made a speech, and warned them. If this thing goes on, the Roman government will move in, and we'll lose the liberties that we enjoy. And what happens at the end of verse, at verse 41? Look down at it. Verse, chapter 19, verse 41. After he had made his speech, he dismissed the assembly, and things quieted down. And chapter 20, verse 1, Paul left, left Ephesus and moved on to Greece. So we have the next thing. The next thing is Paul's ministry in Macedonia and Achaia. Let's read chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging said goodbye, set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area. That's northern Greece, Macedonia. Speaking many words of encouragement to people, finally arrived in Greece. Now that's Achaia, southern Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against Paul, just as he's about to sail for Syria, Paul changed his plans, decided to go back to Macedonia. All right, now here's the Paul's ministry in northern Greece, Macedonia, and in southern Greece, which is Achaia. Now let's look at this for <clears throat> just for a minute. Paul, first of all, went to Macedonia. How long was he there? We don't know. Perhaps six, seven, eight months Paul was in Macedonia. And those four, five, six months. Paul did three things. First of all, he strengthened the churches. Paul always believed 
that pediatrics follows obstetrics. And Paul strengthened the churches, helped them deal with some of their problems. That's the first thing he did. Second thing Paul did was Paul began to make a collection that he was going to take down to the poor saints at Jerusalem. And he refers to that collection in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. The collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So Paul spent some time making a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem who were suffering from famine and also from economic pressure because they were now Christians. Then the third thing Paul did in Macedonia, northern Greece, third thing he did was write an epistle. Now what would that be? Anybody tell me? What did Paul write? Now don't say the Gospel of John. No. Second Corinthians. Second. Paul wrote First Corinthians already at Ephesus. Paul then went up to Macedonia, and there in Macedonia, Paul wrote <coughs> Second Corinthians. <coughs> How do we <coughs> pardon me? How do we know? Because he refers <coughs> pardon me, to his ministry in Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he tells Adam <clears throat> how the poverty of the Macedonians, they gave very liberally. Now, <clears throat> after finishing his ministry in Macedonia in northern Greece, Paul, northern Greece, Paul now comes down to southern Greece, probably to the city of Corinth. What did Paul do there? Paul completed that offering. <clears throat> Secondly, Paul strengthened the church Third, Paul wrote a book. Now, what book would that be? <coughs> what Paul write down? In, <coughs> I'm sorry. What did Paul write down in the city of Corinth? On the second missionary journey, Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians. What did he write when he was <coughs> in Corinth on the third missionary journey? Everybody tell me. Romans. Romans. How do we know? <clears throat> well, if you look here, I'll tell you how we know. We know he wrote it because of what he says in Romans chapter 15. He said, the offering is completed. I've been to Macedonia. I'm down here now. The offering is completed. I would come to you at Rome, but I must go back to Jerusalem and, and deliver this offering. You say, why was Paul so concerned about offering? This is always good to remember whenever you hear the criticism that a preacher is concerned about offerings, especially missionary offerings, that Paul spent a lot of time dealing with church finances. And Paul spent a good deal of his epistles dealing with church finances. Why did Paul want to take this offering back to the saints at Jerusalem? Well, first of all, to relieve their, their dire <coughs> uh, circumstances. Famine often struck. Judea. These people were in dire need. But secondly, because they were converted Jews and had taken their stand for Christ right at the heart of Judaism, they suffered economic pressure. It was hard for them to get jobs. They were persecuted, and many of them the border of starvation. And that's one reason. But another reason Paul did it, Paul was always concerned about the unity of the body of Christ. What was the great cleavage in the early church between what kind of Christians and what kind of Christians? Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. 
Here was the great cleavage in the church. Paul did all that he could to heal this division. Paul was never delighted in church splits. Paul was concerned about the unity of the body of Christ. So Paul said, as the Jews have given to you the gospel, as the Savior was a Jew, as the Jews have given to you the gospel, you Gentiles in Greece, and as Jews have given to you the Old Testament, so you're responsible to also minister to their needs. And one of the way Paul said, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Romans chapter 15, one way is to minister with your spiritual ability, uh, your material ability. So Paul gathered this collection, took about a year from the whole land of Greece to gather this collection, and he took this collection back to Jerusalem to help the poor saints at Jerusalem and to, to cultivate and to strengthen the unity of the body of Christ. Had he not done that, humanly speaking, perhaps we would have had what we had in the Old Testament. What two religions do we have through the Old Testament, latter part of the Old Testament in the biblical history? The religion of the Jews and the religion of the Samaritans. And that's the thing we want to avoid. He did so, one of the ways he did so was by this collection. So after Paul had, had, had written the, uh, the book of Romans, had completed this, this um, this collection, and it helped the church. Paul, after three months, left. Now he intended to go straight back to Jerusalem, and then to Antioch. But a plot was laid against Paul, and they discovered it. So they whisked Paul out of town, and he went up to Macedonia, northern Greece, and came around here. Now, the two things that happened on the way back that are of interest. One is <clears throat> that Paul stopped at the city of Troas. And he stopped there for seven days. Paul was under pressure to get back to Jerusalem by the time of the feast. As a matter of fact, they wanted the, the people at, at Ephesus wanted Paul to stop at Ephesus. Paul said, no, no, I'm not going to. Why? Because if I get to Ephesus, I'll be held too long, and I'll never get back to Jerusalem in time for the feast. So Paul called the elders of the church at Ephesus called them together, and met with them at the little island on Melita, which is not here. And Paul met with those elders at that point, and then sailed quickly on to Jerusalem, always under pressure, always under pressure. At the end of his third missionary journey, always under pressure to get back to Jerusalem in time for the feast. Now, I hope you're all listening to this. But when he came to Troas, he wasted seven days. He got there on Monday, and he waited seven days, and then at the, after the seventh day on the eighth day, he left quickly to meet with the Ephesian elders and quickly to get back to Jerusalem in time for the feast. Why? Well, the reason why is that he wanted to meet with them for their worship service, their breaking of bread service. Look at chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people because he attended. How long at the end of verse 6, how long did Paul stay in Troas while he was there? How long did he stay? Seven days. And after the seven, what did he do? Waited for Sunday. 
so I could meet for the breaking of bread services. Now, I'm asked, and asked quite often, where does the New Testament support the idea that we ought to meet on Sundays? I had uh, uh, a lady write me just last week that asked me about that. She said, please answer quickly. I asked to teach a Sunday school class. Why do you find that the church ought to meet on Sunday? Well, when you look in the New Testament, the evidence seems to be a little weak. Now, the reason why we meet on Sunday is because, first, of the resurrection of Christ on Sunday, and secondly, because of the birthday of the church, Pentecost, took place on Sunday, because Jesus rose on Sunday, and because the church was born on Sunday, we meet on Sunday. But what is the evidence that the church met on Sunday? Well, there are primarily uh, three verses. This one, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 2, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Those are three passages that tell us that the church met on Sunday, that that was the time when she met for the breaking of bread and the taking of the collection and the ministry of the Word of God. See, now, Supposing our churches met at, at supposing our churches met at seven in the morning instead of eleven, would that violate anything in the Bible? No. Supposing our churches met only once instead of twice, would that violate anything in the Bible? No. But suppose instead of meeting on Sunday, we met on Thursday. I think that would violate a principle in the Bible. I think we are to meet together on Sunday, and the support for that is Acts twenty-seven, <clears throat> one of. Paul, under great pressure to get back to Jerusalem, yet wait <clears throat> seven days for the breaking of bread service. What did he do? They broke bread, the communion. They probably did it every Sunday. They had the breaking of bread, communion. Secondly, they had the ministry of the word of God, the sermon, if you will. Third, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, they had collection. They took the collection. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 and 2. They had what is comparable to our worship service, and they had it on Sunday, and there are about three of these passages supported. Then after staying at Troas for seven days, Paul went out down to the little island of Melita and uh, <clears throat> met with the elders at, um, at that island, and that's given to us in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Do you see that? Acts 27. He didn't go to Ephesus. He knew if he got to Ephesus, they'd hold him there. And he wanted to get back to the feast. So he went down to the island of Miletus, Miletus and called the elders of Ephesus down to, uh, down to the island of Miletus and uh, met with them there. Now, it's a beautiful, um, a beautiful passage. In my experience, I've had to, I've uh, pastored two churches and had to say goodbye to two churches. And both times, I preached from Acts chapter 20, Paul's final message to the elders of Ephesus. It's a beautiful passage. We don't have time to look at it. But I want to look at one thing. Paul calls these leaders in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. What are they called in verse 17, chapter 20. Elders. Now look at verse 28. Guard yourselves and all the flock of which, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
That's the word translated elsewhere, bishop. The Greek word is episkopoi. Episkopoi, scopos, telescope, microscope, scope, to look. An epi, to look over, to oversee. Oversee. And elsewhere, it's translated bishop. This tells us that an elder is the same as a bishop. Bishop is the same as an elder. And then also in verse 28, he says, uh, guard yourselves in the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. Shepherds. Do you have that? What does it say there in your Bible? Thieves ought to be shepherds. And that's the word that's translated pastor. So an elder was the same as a bishop, was the same as a pastor in Acts chapter 20. Now, there are elders, I believe, that are not pastors. The distinction is made between the ruling elder and the teaching elder, and that's probably a proper distinction. What is here is that, as uh, far as I'm concerned, I don't believe in the two-ordered ministry, uh, in the three-ordered ministry, but in the two-ordered ministry. A three-ordered ministry is deacon, and then above the deacon, the elder, and above the elder, the bishop. I believe the bishop and the elder the same. That three-tiered ministry began really in the second century. When you go to the New Testament, elder and bishop are the same. Elder speaks of his maturity. Bishop speaks of his function. He has spiritual oversight, as does the word shepherd also speaks of his function. Now, there are a lot of problems with that. We're not going into it. That one of them is, do we have a plurality or singularity of elders in churches? Some churches have a plurality of elders. Other churches, Baptist churches, have a singularity of elders. And that is the pastor. He's the teaching elder. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to solve that problem in this class. I do it in systematic theology before. At least I attempt to do it, whether or not I solve it. I don't know. <clears throat> but I've got, you know, a lot of young fellows that come in these classes, and they come from independent churches or Baptist churches, and I ask them, where are your elders? And they don't know. So whatever church you belong to, you ought to find out where are your elders and where are your deacons, and what is this bishop? Because church government really is an important um, facet of church life. Now, after that, Paul gets on back to, uh, he uh, moves on back to Jerusalem. Let's go to chapter 21. After he finished meeting with the elders at Ephesus, they, they go to Coast and Rhodes and then to Tyre, then to uh, Caesarea, and then chapter 21, verse 15 and 16. After this, we got ready, went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples of Caesarea covenant us and brought us to the home Manasseh in Jerusalem, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So that ends the third missionary journey. Now I wonder if you'd look up here. On the third missionary journey, <clears throat> what has Paul accomplished? I always like to look at this. We looked at it at the end of the first missionary journey. We looked at it at the end of the second missionary journey. Now here we're at the end of the third missionary journey. Paul spent about five years on the third missionary journey. Let's say 52 or 53 to 57 A.D. What did Paul accomplish? Number one, he evangelized the strategic cities of Western Asia Minor. 
And this became the cradle of Christianity after the first century. Number two, <clears throat> Paul established local churches. The aim of Paul's missionary endeavors was the establishment of local churches. And I always evaluate a missionary organization in terms of its ultimate objective. Is it intended in one way or another to establish local churches or to help in the establishment of local churches? Paul, wherever he went, wherever he evangelized, Paul established local churches. That means he ordained officers. That's the key to it. Deacons and elders, he ordained elders. He gave them some form of service, the breaking of the bread, the ministry of the Word of God, the taking of collections at the Sunday service. And then he dealt with some of the problems and taught the leaders how to deal with spiritual problems in the church. And then later on, he'd write back to them and send, he'd revisit them, and he'd write letters, and he'd send representatives to encourage the church and develop. Paul was concerned in local churches, not simply in evangelism. Paul was both a obstetrician and a pediatrician. Paul not only won men to faith in Christ, he also nurtured them and established local churches. So Paul evangelized Western Asia. He established local churches. He wrote three books. What were they? First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Romans, in that order. First Corinthians from Ephesus, Second Corinthians from Macedonia, Book of Romans from the city of Corinth. Then he did one other thing, and that is Paul uh, was concerned and worked hard at maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. So that concludes Paul's missionary journeys. Now let's look at Paul's imprisonment. Paul's imprisonment. Three imprisonments of Paul. First in Jerusalem. Secondly, in Caesarea, and third, in Rome. Let's look at these, and we'll have to do this quickly. First of all, in Jerusalem. Paul was in prison in Jerusalem. But that goes from Acts 21, verse 17, as I have it on the board, Acts 21, 17, to Acts 23, verse 30. Paul in prison. And that's given to us, the fact that Paul is put in prison is given to us in um, Acts, Let's see, uh, Acts 23, uh, verse 10. Acts 23, verse 10. <clears throat> Acts 23, verse 10. It says in Acts 23, verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take Paul away from them by force and bring Paul into the barracks. So Paul's in prison. He's only in prison for a couple of days. Let me tell you very quickly what happened there. Paul, first of all, in prison in Jerusalem. Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He completed a vow, probably a Nazarite vow in the temple. When he'd finished with that vow and cut his hair once again after 30 days, um, some unbelieving Jews spotted Paul. And they knew who Paul was. And they instigated a riot against Paul. 
They would have killed him. But the captain of the guard came out and got hold of Paul and rescued Paul. And Paul reminded him that he was a Roman citizen. You better watch out what you do. Because if I'm a Roman citizen and something happens to me, you'll have to give an account to the higher officer. So he gave Paul an opportunity to make a speech. Paul made two speeches, one on the stairs and then the next day to the Sanhedrin. In both of them, he was rejected. So the chief captain put Paul in the barracks in prison in Jerusalem. Paul had a nephew, had a sister, and the sister had a son. And Paul's nephew, in scouting around, discovered that a number of men, unbelievers, had taken a vow not to eat anything, to go on a fast, not to eat anything, until they put Paul to death. Paul's nephew got wind of this. The nephew got to the captain of the guard and told him. So the captain of the guard at 9 o'clock at night got the cavalry, got the foot soldiers, slipped Paul out of that Jerusalem barracks prison, and at midnight whisked Paul down to Caesarea. Now Caesarea is on the coast of Palestine. There it is. You see it's north, almost due north of Jerusalem. Caesarea was the um, was the residence of the Roman governors. Pilate was the sixth Roman governor. Felix and Festus were also Roman governors, and Paul's going to stand before them. And it was the capital, was the home, the residence of the Roman governor, Caesarea. So Paul was whisked down to Caesarea, and that's Paul's second imprisonment, and that imprisonment is in Caesarea. Now look with me, please. Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea, look with me, at verse, chapter 23, verse 33. Chapter 23, verse 33. 23, verse 33. When the cavalry <clears throat> arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to the governor. The governor read the letter, asked what province he's from, learning that he's from Cilicia, he said, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's residence, Herod's palace, probably in a private room under guard in that palace. Now, how long was he there? Look at chapter 24, verse 27. How long was Paul in Caesarea? How long? Two years. 57, 58, 59. Probably the fall of 57 to the fall of 59. Two years Paul was there in Caesarea in prison. Now, I wonder if you look up here. Paul stands on three trials. While he was in Caesarea, Paul had three trials. The first trial was before Felix, the Roman procurator. The second trial was before Festus, another Roman procurator. Felix, uh, Festus succeeded Felix. And then the third trial was before Agrippa and his wife, Drusilla, and the Roman governor Festus, three trials. First trial is given to us in Acts 24. That's the trial before Felix. Felix. And um, that's given to us in verse, look at chapter 24, verse 2. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before who? Chapter 24, verse 2. The end of verse 2. What's the man's name? The middle of verse 2. Felix. Felix, that's the Roman governor, the Roman procurator. And Felix heard him all act 
24, Felix heard him. Paul stated his case, told about his uh, conversion to Christ and what he had been doing. And then Felix put Paul back in prison and left him there for two years, thinking that Paul might pay him a bribe to get out. But he didn't. So he come to verse 27. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius who? Festus. That's the next Roman character. So in chapter 25, we have the trial before Festus. Chapter 25, the trial before Festus. And that runs about half of chapter, down to verse 12. And then in verse 13, chapter 25, verse 13, somebody comes up from Jerusalem. He's a king. What's his name in chapter 25, verse 13? Agrippa comes up with his wife, Bernice, and they arrived in Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. So in chapter 25 and verse 26, Paul appears on a third trial. This time it's before Agrippa. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, chapter 26, verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate. And Paul tells about his background, about his history, and about his conversion. Chapter 26. Now, verse 24. Look at chapter 26, verse 24. Right in the middle of his story, Festus, the procurator, breaks in. What's Festus' view about Paul? Verse 24. He's what? He's crazy. You're insane, Paul. Festus is not Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul said, I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Verse 26, the king. That's not Festus. That's Agrippa. Agrippa is a part Jew. That king, he knows it. He's lived down in Jerusalem. He knows the truth of it. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Festus doesn't. He's a Roman. I can't expect him to. But you are part Jew. You know the prophets. Then verse 28, often misinterpreted. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now we got that hymn, haven't we? Almost persuaded. And the King James lends credence to that. You've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. But that's really not what Agrippa said. What Agrippa said, he said with, with cynicism. Do you think in such short, now we don't know whether it's short time or short argument. I tend to think it's different from the translation. <clears throat> Do you think Paul with such little argument, with such a short defense, with such little evidence, you can persuade me to be a Christian. That's the viewpoint that Agrippa, from which Agrippa came. Then, verse 29, Paul replied, short time or long, whatever it may be, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, a Christian, except to be saved.